All right, another reconnaissance mission. I have two <laughs> cat skills and a twenty-five hour ferry ride from. Yeah, that from one Tokyo. might be a little harder. Yeah, that, uh, I can't really pull that off this weekend. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 313. Ancient Rome was eight times more densely populated than modern-day New York City. Wow. I wonder what those home prices were like. Getting to work from anywhere in the world is absolutely amazing. And today's guest, Gabby Logan, is going to show you how she's able to do that through freelance writing and how she teaches people to be able to build this location independent lifestyle through freelance writing. One of the downsides, though, is that you have to make sure that you're taking care of your laptop. So every time I travel, my laptop is like my holy grail. I have to make sure that it's not getting destroyed. And that's why I love my Tortuga backpacks, the Outbreaker backpack, the Set Out backpack. They have dedicated laptop sleeves with padding. They can slip right in. They're super easy to take out when I have to go through airport security. And they always have protected my laptop. I've never got a scratch on it, never got a ding on it, anything like that. So to me, when I'm traveling, I have to make sure that my laptop stays safe. One of the reasons I love my Tortuga backpack. So if you're traveling with a laptop, if you're someone who can work from anywhere, or you just have electronics that you don't want to get beat up, make sure you check out tortugabackpacks.com. Check out their line of backpacks that they have there. Most of them have dedicated laptop sleeves that are going to keep your laptop safe and sound when you're traveling. And don't forget to use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capital letters, and that'll get you 10% off your entire order. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sher, and joining me today is someone who ran one of my favorite workshops at the World Domination Summit this past year, who has a retreat center in the Catskills, and who studied abroad in one of the best cities in the world, Florence, Gabby Logan, founder of dreamoftravelwriting.com. Gabby, thanks for joining me today, and welcome. Thank you for having me. I am super excited because I'm going to I'm going to give you the honest, brutally honest truth here. When I first saw the workshop come up on the WDS app or wherever I found it and it was like how to how to what was it called how to make six figures travel writing or the six figure travel writer or something like that yeah right? so that's my book actually is the six figure travel writing roadmap and it's funny you say that because I've got I've done workshops a couple places where people are like I saw that and I thought it was a scam or something like that yeah <laughs> right well even as someone who's in this world I just thought okay what are we gonna get into here right like I was skeptical I'm sure like most people. And, you know, we've done plenty of workshops where we're like, oh, your blog is not your business. It's just the marketing thing. You know, I'm like, what is she going to teach me that, that I don't know or that, um, that that's new? And the answer was a whole lot, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm super excited to have you on today. And we're going to touch on that ways that people can make, you know, a significant amount of money as a travel writer, how and where to find those gigs that pay and pay well and all that kind of stuff. Also, we're going to talk about your retreat center and of course, a bunch of travel stories and mishaps. So if you are someone who's listening, who's like, Hey, I, I have this dream of being a travel writer. 
Uh, well, there you go. That's I guess that's why you have the name of your website, huh? Um, if you have a dream of travel writing, you're going to want to stay with us this whole time because Gabby has some phenomenal advice that I hadn't heard really anywhere else. So before we get into that, Gabby, though, I do kind of want to like back it up a bit. And the backbone of everything you do and everything we do here is travel. So when did that love of travel take hold for you? I'm actually a funny case because I know a lot of people perhaps traveled a lot with their family. In fact, I was listening, as I'm sure that you listeners have, to some of Travis's other podcasts. And there's often that story of, well, I went with my family to blah, and that was it for me. But my family never traveled. Actually, my family traveled in this kind of weird way where they would only always go to the same place and never anywhere else. And we would never leave the country. My parents just had no interest whatsoever. But the weird flip side of that was that I grew up speaking Spanish because we lived in California and everybody speaks Spanish. And then my sister, who's quite a bit younger than me, she had an au pair that was from France by way of Algeria and Quebec. So I grew up with languages and like this little hint of culture, but not actually ever traveling. So the first couple times that I left the country were always for kind of work, actually, but work as a teenager. So I'll explain. So I used to play field hockey, which sometimes people think is really silly. Um, But I was in the Olympic development program for field hockey. And field hockey isn't so big in America, but it's really big in the Netherlands and also in the UK. And so I went on a trip through the Olympic development program to five or six countries in Europe to play field hockey. But while we were there, they took us around on, you know, those crazy bus tours where you see everything in the city in one day. We did some of those. And then the next year, I used to sing professionally. And I went on a singing trip to Australia and New Zealand. And it was the same thing. We would be performing, but then we would take these little bus tours. And so to me, travel was always the tease. It was like, here are all these great things that you aren't experiencing, but they're out there. And here are these cultures that are different, that you know people in different places, you know, just go to the grocery store differently than you do, but you don't quite know about it. So when I went to college, I decided in advance some by reading the course catalog of my university, they had a program majoring in Italian literature where you would go to Italy for a year, but you wouldn't take classes with your university. You take classes at the Italian university, but your school would also pay for you to go on vacations, basically, to other parts of Italy and learn about Venice or learn about Naples. And I was like, well, I'm doing that. If my tuition can essentially be like a cool, free, guided trip for the year, that's what I'm doing. So I organized my entire undergrad around going to Italy to do that. And then after that, I would just travel every opportunity that I had. But always, again, like with that language and learning about the culture element was really important to me. I never thought that we'd have the Olympic field hockey developmental system oh, in common. Not that I was, because uh, gu- could know because guys field hockey is even less common uh-huh. in the U.S. Yeah. But my mother uh, was in the Olympic field hockey developmental program. She still coaches field hockey, and she used to run camps. Speaking about a tease, when I was young. And they'd bring Dutch guys over to to teach field hockey, right? To to all these, you know, middle school slash high school girls and not really. Well, that's a tease guys. for the ladies for sure. Yeah, well, no kidding, <laughs> no kidding. But for me, I was always like, who are these like cool, tall guys playing field hockey? You know, like muscular. And I'm like, where you know, I had never been abroad at at that point when I was younger. And it was just it was neat to have that little part of culture come and say, like, oh, they're they're different than me for sure, but 
there are a lot of similarities. And so um, I actually have never thought about the fact that that helped pique a little bit of my interest, but there it was. So yeah, Olympic and field even, hockey, changing the right? world, right? Changing our I've little I've never worlds. had anyone else know what that is, um, the Olympic development program that is. But yeah, like even in my high school, there was a, uh, she wasn't an exchange student, but her family had moved over and she was this Dutch girl. And it, it's interesting, like you say, that my first exposure to a lot of foreign cultures was through these things that are very mundane. Like I remember when we were in the Netherlands, they have turf fields in their parks, like just their normal parks that you would go to for with your kids for playing field hockey. And that made me think like, oh, parks are different in different countries. And then in Italy, like when you need something that here we would go to CVS or something to get, there's no CVS equivalent. There's tons of little tiny stores. And so the, the the shopping list of things that you would just go to CVS and get, you instead need to go to like six different stores in radically different parts of the city in Florence in order to achieve that. Right. And deal with like six little old Italian men or women who are like, you know, yeah, have their little packages of certain things. I That is one of my favorite things to do when traveling is going into, well, grocery, grocery stores, but even stores in general and just walking around and just seeing how different it is. Like regular life things that are radically different um, is just a, a really cool thing about travel and culture that, you know, isn't the only reason I travel, of course, but I always love the ability and the option to like, hey, I'm going to pop in this grocery store and just see how it's different. Usually it's much smaller than what we have in the States um, with far fewer products. But yeah, they're often, they, I feel like to me, I'm like a grocery store tourist. I will specifically go to grocery stores, places, just to see how the food culture is different in terms of what you buy in the store and how that informs what you're able to cook at home or what you make from scratch versus what's prepared. Like that to me is fascinating always. What are the prepared foods in other countries? Because like you go to Spain and they'll have essentially like a prepared like tapas plate, but they'll have like everything. And then they also have like croquettes and these different things. And it's just so everything thing that you would love to buy when you're there as a person. And it's like, I love that the Spaniards also get these things at the grocery store, you know? Yep. Yep. I totally, totally agree. And going and living in Japan, that was one of my first, just my first jumping head into the Japanese culture was going to the grocery store, obviously having very few clues of what anything was, unless it was like a fish wrapped, you know, in clear plastic. And then even then I didn't know what the fish was or what I was supposed to do with it because it's like a whole fish. But yeah, I just, I, I always love that. And just seeing like, yeah, this, what in my head did I think this would look like? And then how is it different? Um, just a cool little window into, into non-tourist life when it comes to, to other cultures that, that I love. So you went to Italy then and you spent time there for a whole year, which is, I think, I, you know, people say they have no regrets in life, right? I do have one regret and it wasn't, it was not studying abroad. Now I could back it up and say, well, maybe if I'd study abroad, I wouldn't have made up for lost time now or things like that. Right. But yeah. How awesome is it for a college kid to say, yeah, I'm going to get to go to another country, pay the same amount of tuition, basically have easier classes and get to see a lot more. So you went and you went to Florence, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. And what was that like then, as you said, like you had had these little teases of uh, like you'd been to other countries, but it was always like one day bus trip, one day bus trip. What was it like then to, to actually live somewhere for an extended period of time? Mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate because I was in a increasingly rare program where during my undergrad time when I was still in America, they were very focused on preparing you, not necessarily for this day-to-day -day stuff. I often joke that when I first moved in with my host mom, I didn't have a towel in my room, but I didn't know the word for towel. 
but I could like quote Dante to you. But so it's not necessarily that they prepared us for that level of little everyday stuff, but they were really knowing that we would go there and we would be part of the culture and we would be going to school in the university. And so when we first came about five weeks of our program was these little classes that were essentially about how to live in Italy. And we would have local university students that would physically take us to the train station and show us how to buy train tickets or take us to the cafe and tell us what to order and what this pastry is and what that pastry is. And so I feel really fortunate that I had a sort of institutionalized way of learning how to act in Italian culture. Oddly for me, the weirdest thing about living in Florence was living in a city because I had previously gone to school in Western Massachusetts and I grew up in a very, very small town in California, which is now not so small because it's Silicon Valley now. But this is one of the interesting things that I find even for people who, you know, like you were saying about yourself and, and also myself, haven't gotten to go abroad as young people, whether it's in high school or even in your college time, that I moved from California to Massachusetts for school. And that to me was a really big culture shock coming from the West Coast to the East Coast and not even just in terms of the snow, but different vocabulary and different things like that. So I think having that experience of translocating, even though it was in the same language, helped prepare me for going to Italy and soaking that up because I already knew what I needed to look out for. So for instance, when I would be talking to people, I would listen for things that they said. And I even did this to, in India. The first time I went to India, I didn't know anything. And I just listened for the way that people said, okay. And there were three different words that they used that were in slightly different settings. And I just picked up that way of saying, okay, that was more like people there do. And even though I didn't know anything else, it made people feel more like I lived there and like I was a local. And so when I lived in Florence, I tried to pick up as with whatever level of language I was at or knowing about the culture or knowing about the city, I just tried to pick up these, these little local ways of doing things. And even like how you tie your scarf or the director of our Italian program would always say that the fashion of the, of the students would change dramatically by the end of the year. Everyone would have new jeans and, you know, new, new hairstyles and all that stuff. And, and this is one of the things that has really served me well going forward is that, you know, especially as a journalist, but also just as a traveler who wants to know what to do in a place, when you meet people where they are, instead of coming from your own culture and imposing that in whether the way you ask questions or what kind of things you ask for to do has really helped me to unearth a lot of things from locals that they might not tell you otherwise, or that they might kind of think like, oh, you wouldn't care. And so it's, that open attitude, I think, was one of the things that served me really well in Florence because a lot of the other people in my program, for instance, I remember we watched a lot of television, which seems stupid, but in Italy, they dub everything. They have this amazing culture of dubbing where Game of Thrones will show here and then the very next day, the same episode is on in Italy, but in Italian. Yeah, and you're like, and how do they of, turn that around so quick, right? You know? Yeah, but some of the actors are better in Italian. Like some of the voices are seriously better. Like they have just this amazing culture of dubbing. And so because I was like, we were watching, we had the TV on during dinner or whatever, it allowed us to pick up a lot of both colloquial things and no like cultural touch points. And then I remember some other people in our program, we wanted to sit down and watch a very classic Italian movie and they needed it with the subtitles. And I just felt like they had missed out on this whole part of Italian culture, which is this dubbing thing that doesn't really happen anywhere else in the same way. But that goes back to what you and I were saying about these things that are everyday life, right? Like to me, those are the things that are really fascinating, but they're also the ways that help you understand the people that you're with. And you had mentioned Japan, the grocery stores, but people 
people who've been to Japan might know, for instance, that the 7-Elevens are the thing, so to say, that in 7-Eleven you can get amazing food. My personal favorite is the pancakes that have a pat of butter and maple syrup in the middle, and it's this little pancake sandwich. And you're like, why do they have pancakes in Japan? But they do. <laughs> but they do. Those kombinis are uh, you can, people don't understand convenience. Like when I come and I was like, oh, well, they have convenience stores everywhere in, in Japan. People are like, oh, well, that's nice. And they think of their convenience store. I'm like, you don't get it. This is like a convenience store on steroids over and over again. You could do everything. You could buy movie tickets. You could pay bills. You can buy, yeah, you buy nice whiskey. They have like people stand and read magazines for hours. Like it is the hub of everything that is going on. Uh, speaking about really cool things that they have in Japan at convenience stores, you could always buy hot dogs on a stick, which, believe it or not, were actually pretty good. And they had little packets of ketchup and mustard that you would break open and squeeze, and it was a perfect line of both. So I learned to like mustard in Japan because I you couldn't just have the ketchup. They both came out. <laughs> so I was like, well, That's I guess amazing. I'm liking mustard. And now I like mustard way more than ketchup. So... Yeah, all the all the things that happen to you when you travel, right? The nuances of of living in a place, and I think that's what what you're hitting home too. The the idea that when you do travel slower and or live somewhere, when you're somewhere for an extended period of time, you really do get to see things and appreciate things and experience things that you just can't when you're traveling through in a couple of days. And listen, I travel fast sometimes and slow other times, so there's no right or wrong way. But it is really nice when you get to dive into a place much deeper than someone who goes through as a tourist. And like what you just said about the ketchup and mustard, I love that because it's a perfect example of how you often learn things about yourself when you travel slowly. Like when you travel more quickly, you can learn things about the place and you can be exposed to those things in the country. But it's when you travel more slowly that you really get to see how you function in other settings and other situations and specifically when you're uncomfortable. That was a quote I had read when I was looking at what university to go to, which is that you learn more about yourself when you're uncomfortable. And that was one of the reasons that I moved to Massachusetts and that I decided to go to Italy and all of these things. But I, but I think that is also one of the things that propelled me into travel writing is that, yes, you learn about these other places or you're exposed to these things or they're beautiful and you get to see mountains that we don't have things like that or lakes or, you know, the beaches in Croatia or whatever. But travel helps you learn about yourself, things that you would never be able to do when you're at home. And that's one of the things that I really love about it. For travel writing, let let's go into your history with there. I guess your how your career of a tra of being a travel writer has spawned itself. Was it something that when you were in Florence and when you're going to school, you thought, okay, like this is what I want to do. I want to be a travel writer. Walk us through the process that you took to get to to essentially where you are now, because I think a lot of people maybe not everyone, but certainly a lot of people listening to this podcast have dreams of being a travel writer. And uh, some of the dreams might not always be reality, and we can get into all that too. But when did that start for you? And then what did it look like actually as it progressed? And that's a great question, the way that you framed it about the dreams. Because when you mentioned, like, I guess that's why the company is called that, it's kind of funny because it, it we actually call it that because of the double-edged sword. Because it's seen, you hear the, you know, you can sit on a beach with your laptop or you get paid to stay in five-star hotels and get spa treatments and all those things. And that's the dream. But the thing is that there's kind of, not to say that there's a nightmare that underlies that, but the, the, the dream, it tends to be a bit of a myth, not necessarily the end part, but that it'll just happen overnight or that it'll just 
that all you have to do is, you know, get an assignment or reach out to this tourism board or something like that. And so for me, I did, as you said, I was doing some writing when I first came back from Italy that was about Italy or, you know, living in another country and some things like that for some websites. And of course, I have no idea what those websites are and I don't have those clips. And sometimes people ask me, like, what was your first clip? And I'm like, Mike, I don't know. I lost it. It was in some other email address. This is before we all had the same email address for life. (laughs) And yeah. And so then I, I graduated school and my friend and I were actually planning to move to New Zealand. There's this program that I'm pretty sure they still have where you, as long as you're under the age of 25 or something like that, you can get a visa to live and work in New Zealand for two years. And we were planning to do that. And then we just couldn't quite get our, our crap together to get the applications in. And so then I ended up in Boston looking for a job, but always with the idea that I want to live abroad somewhere sometime soon. So I took this first job really with the eye of I'm saving up money so I can go travel. And that was typical post-college wanderlust, right? Like I'm just going to save money and then I'm just going to go blow it all in traveling, which I I don't not recommend that. It's pretty cool. But I kind of had the idea that I actually wanted to, like I was saying, I was really into um, what travel could teach you about yourself. And so I wanted at the time to become an Italian literature professor. I wanted to do a PhD and teach other students the same things I had learned about Italy so they could go and do that themselves. And so at the time, I was still really within the realm of Italy specific. But to do a PhD in Italian, ironically, you also need to know German and French or some other languages, because you have to be able to read the literary criticism and some other academic nonsense. So you actually needed other languages. So I set about learning these other languages and going to those countries to practice them. So that kind of influenced my travel was setting things up to get this PhD. But as that was happening, and as I was starting to travel to these other countries, I realized as we travelers know now that you can have those experiences in more than one country. You don't need to just know that place really well. So I actually quit my job that I had right out of college with a a bit of money saved up. And I went to, as a lot of people do, I went to Bali for three weeks. There was a writing conference going on there. They have a really big writing conference. And that was supposed to be the kickoff of my freelancing. And this was when, this was in, uh, 2007, I believe, when like blogging wasn't such a big thing and I was going to start a blog. And then what happened was I came home and somebody that I knew had a short-term job that they needed filled. And they said, hey, will you do this? And then they wanted to offer me that job. And then MIT came up with a job that was just for me that they wanted me to do. And so then, as often happens with people who quit their jobs, I ended up going back and working in a full-time job again. But I got stuck there for four years. And it took me until I was about to get married and my husband lived somewhere else and I was going to have to leave my job anyway to get back to freelancing. So I didn't really do any freelance writing at all in the intervening years because I was just kind of back at my job and I was doing traveling for myself, but not really as freelance writing. And so then I, as time went on, I decided that I didn't need to teach Italian, that I could be doing travel writing and reaching more people with the same message than if I was an academic and I just had my students in journals and I had to wait around until I got tenure. So when I quit my job the second time, I knew that I wanted to do freelance writing, but I made all of the same, I don't know if I want to say the word mistakes, because that throws a little shade on people. Yeah, well, like misconceptions, I think... I, I was thinking of a way to phrase this as well. Well, there's a way that most people think about travel writing, let's put it that way. And when I came to your workshop, I was thinking in that vein. And I I don't 
do that type of like travel writing. I don't, you know, I do a lot of other stuff, but I was like, all right, she's going to teach us how to do this, this and this. And then the thing I loved about the workshop was you said like, here's what most people think it is. Here's what most people think it looks like. I'm going to tell you how I do it. And I think, you know, that this is just another option. So it's not that you, you know, one is necessarily right or wrong, I guess, but that there's a whole nother option out there that a lot of people don't even pay attention to. So Speaking of that, like what, yeah, what were some of those, uh, we could call them mistakes or we could say like, what were some of those things that you did in the beginning that now you said, all right, I found a better way for me. And again, the landscape has changed in terms of what's available in terms of writing opportunities because of various things on the internet becoming more prevalent. So when I first left my job, blogger was, I wouldn't say it was like a dirty word. Maybe I would say it was the black sheep of the writing community might be more appropriate. But I had had a food blog for a little while and I felt very confident writing online. I had also been writing online when I was at MIT, but I felt like I couldn't do that because I felt like it wasn't legitimate enough. And so I tried to kind of force myself into the mold of more journalism. And for a little while, that meant writing online for magazines. And then for a while, that became writing for magazines themselves. And so there was an interesting point where I was also blogging for clients. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. But I would go to blogging conferences, but I didn't have my own blog. And people would be like, oh, what's your blog? And I was like, no, no, I'm a freelance blogger. I get paid to blog. And they were like, huh? Like, <laughs> what do you what, mean? What yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, you know, like I get, I write like a thousand word post and I get $250. And they were like, $250? They were like, I don't, and that doesn't compute. And now that's much more normal. But at the time, I felt like I was weird. And so instead, I wrote for publications. And it's this weird thing that we talked about in the workshop that Travis mentioned previously, that because of blogging, whether you're blogging for yourself or for a company, or like I was talking about blogging even for the website of a magazine, there's fewer people pitching magazines. So magazines are actually this really wonderful opportunity right now to be a freelance writer, period, but especially in the travel space. But what happened to me was that I was writing for some magazines. And then by virtue of the work that I was doing, I was meeting a lot of tourism boards and tour companies and things like that, that had, you know, horrible websites or that had really great stories to tell that they weren't really telling. And so what I started doing was pitching, like doing a cold email pitch to companies to do their blog for them or to do their newsletter for them. And what's actually the the funny and really lovely thing is that you can even pitch people who are in the same market because if you get an NDA, you're legally not allowed to tell the competitor that you're writing for the competitor. So you're like <laughs> totally safe. Um, now, was this hard though? Uh, so what year was this or, or time frame was this when you started asking these companies, hey, do you want me to, to write your blog for you? Do you want me to do your email newsletters, things like that? What year was it? And was it hard to get them to buy in or did they see the value of it? They just couldn't do it themselves because they didn't have someone who was capable or they just didn't have time. By the time that I got the the wherewithal to start pitching these things myself cold rather than just applying to jobs that were on the internet would have been around 2013, I think, or maybe 2012. And it's interesting because now I teach, I teach how to do this. And so I still know what the responses look like today versus like when I was starting to do it. And the responses are very similar. So it's, 
on the one hand, you could say like it's that they don't have time doing it. But on the other hand, in a way that I like to explain it is like all of us who have blogs or all of us who have businesses, we know like all the different things that we need to do. We need to do operations. We need to do promotion. We need to actually do the work. You know, we have all this different stuff we need to do. And then we're also trying to keep up on what are the innovations in terms of email marketing or, you know, security on your blog and all these different things. And you, we know that we can't do it all. But sometimes when we think about pitching other companies, companies, we, we don't realize that they're in the same boat. So it's often the case that, like Travis said, they, they know that they should have a blog and they don't have time to do it themselves, but also they're just not as expert on it as those of us who, who specifically have our own blogs and have been running it. And so just knowing that we know like way more than they do about it, even if they don't know anything else about you, makes it very easy for them to trust you to do their blog. Have you run into issues, though, whether it be when you were doing this or whenever, whenever, like some of your students who are doing this and the people you teach now, where they don't see the value in it, where they think, okay, yeah, it would be nice to have a blog, but we don't, you know, why should, should we have it? Or are you usually pitching people that inherently already know, all right, we got to bring this stuff online because this is what everyone else is doing? I think it's both because, and I'll, and I'll explain. So I think there's a value problem, but it's not exactly how you said, but I do always tell people to pitch companies that already have a blog or that are already doing some sort of content on their website, but for a different reason, it's not because they already know the value. It's because the technical setup is already there because I used to work for before, before I left when I was still working in Boston, I was on the board of a couple nonprofits. And so I've seen firsthand when small organizations are trying to make changes on their websites, how long that takes to do the technical setup and how many people have to approve it and all the nonsense that has to go through. And so that can take a really long time and holds up your check as a freelancer, if you're the one doing the content, because that comes at the end of the party in terms of doing the technical setup and how it looks and everything. So it's much better to approach somebody that already has the technical aspect set up just for the purely selfish reason that you get to do your job and get that money sooner. So that's one of the reasons that that doesn't come up quite so much when people are pitching. But what does come up is the rate sort of you know, shock scare, let's call it, when people see how much it costs to have somebody do that for them rather than when they think of how much it just costs them to do it themselves. And, you know, I hire contractors and, and I know how that dichotomy can look when you think of how long it would take you to do it versus how long it takes someone else to do it or what you think that rate should be. But I was just talking on a coaching call before this interview with somebody who had sent out a proposal and she hadn't heard back, right? And isn't this whether you're a graphic designer or a web developer or a writer, this is like our, our greatest nightmare that we get on the phone with the client, we take the time to put together the proposal. Now we're several hours in the hole with no pay yet, and then nothing comes of it. That's the worst. And I asked her, did you find out what their budget was? Because they were super excited, they really liked her, and she hasn't heard. And this is almost always what happens. It's not necessarily that they don't see the value, but that they don't understand the value at the price that you gave them. And so that's one of the things, whether you're pitching blogging or whatever it is that you sell, that you can run into that sort of value issue is around when they have a number in their head that hasn't been reconciled with the number that you're going to send them before it shows up to them on a piece of paper. Right. And so what's an... I mean, there's probably no one size fits all answer to this, but what is a way to work with that issue? Like, what is something that you would suggest someone do if they gave a number, they haven't heard back, 
And now they're sitting there thinking like, uh oh, either like I asked way too much or is there something they can do beforehand to get a better feel for maybe where they should price themselves at? Yeah. So, so like, because I coach, I have answers to both of those. So obviously you would prefer to fix it before it happens. Um, and the way to, to prevent that from happening is that, you know, often when, when people send a cold pitch or if you're just on the phone, people say, you know, often in like lowercase, no punctuation, really brusquely, how much does that cost? Like this is a very common email response that you get. And the way that, that I do it slash I teach it and people do it is to say, it depends on what you're looking for. And so we use this as a interesting kind of selling tool to show them how complicated blogging is to scare them out of doing it themselves while also proving our own value. So for instance, we say, you know, we drop things like keyword research and SMO, SEO optimization and, and, you know, selecting images from stock with the correct attributions and editorial strategy and, and developing ideas around what your customers want to know. So we basically say like, it could cost like from this to this, and these are all of the factors. So I need to know more about what you personally are interested in before I can give you a more specific number. And that helps push them towards hopping on the phone and discussing with you further. But if you've had that phone call, and then you've sent them the proposal and you're now in the in the sad cricket land, let's call it. Um, so if you're hanging out in sad cricket land, what you can always do is say you had sent the proposal, a week has gone by, you haven't heard anything. You can say, hey, I just wanted to see if you had any questions about anything in the proposal. I know we didn't talk about a lot of these things on the phone call because I was digesting what you were looking for to put together the proposal. But if you want to hop back on the phone and talk about different types of packages for different budgets let's do that and like offer them some days. So that's another way you can bring it back if it really feels like you're starting to lose them. Yeah, I think that that was a great point that you made as well is kind of breaking down. I, anytime you're doing anything, whether it be writing or any type of contracting, freelance service, breaking down everything that's involved in it is going to, as you said, make your value that much higher and make them realize all the things that go into it that they don't know about. So instead of saying, hey, I'm just going to write you an article and you're going to have it on your site. I mean, your writers or you would probably do SEO and keyword research and all that anyway, because and if it's interviews versus online research. Right. Yeah, it's it's you're going to do it. But you don't think of it as like step by step by step because a lot of times people are used to doing it, right? So they would do all that naturally. But if you sit down and think of all the things you're doing, obviously it's much. It's usually much more robust than just just the actual writing part. There's so much more that that can go into it. If if people are so we're talking about like these negotiations and things like that. But what if someone's just starting out and they're saying, "All right." I I want to be a travel writer. I you know a lot of times people say, all right, I'm going to start my own blog. Uh, so you can tell us mm. whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, or mm-hmm. or or who it's right for, or who it's maybe not right for. I again, good and bad are a little tough. He laughs because to he knows my stance on this. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of people will be like, I want to be a travel writer. I'm going to start my own blog, and I'm going to make money off my own blog. Mm-hmm. What would you say to those people who are starting out who think that's probably the, the way to go answer. about it? Yeah. Yeah. So this is interesting. So I I like to think of in terms of ways that you can make money as a travel writer, let's call it, that there's essentially three avenues and you can mix mix and match. One of them, what I just described about this thing of going to companies or going to tourism boards, we'll call that content marketing, right? The other way is editorial. So writing for publications and those publications can also be online. There's a shocking number of websites now that have 
travel editorial that you wouldn't expect. Um, and I often, and this is kind of why the path is very different for each person. So for instance, somebody that I coach, she has been writing for a while about mindfulness and wellness and meditation and different things like that. So we were looking up outlets for her to transition sideways that had that element, but also had travel and well plus good, which is a really big website that a lot of people really like, you know, the writing and the images on, but it's in the wellness space. They have a huge travel section. If you're in food, tasting table has a huge travel section. So a lot of these these websites that you might already be frequenting do have travel editorial. So editorial isn't just magazines these days. And the next one would be having your own blog and monetizing your blog. And for a long time, and I think thankfully this piece of advice is starting to die out, but people were being told if you want to be a freelance travel writer, so not your own business person, but if you want to be writing for other places, whether content marketing or editorial, you should start a blog because then your blog posts will become clips. And I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't betray how I feel about it. But then editors will come and find you based on your blog posts and assign you articles, right? This goes into all of those dream of travel writing myths, right? So the thing is that as any of us who have had blogs know for the first year, whatever, it's your mom and the crickets who are coming by and hanging out on your blog. And that's not a very viable strategy until perhaps your blog has become big enough maybe that now editors are coming to visit. So that's not a good way to start if your goal is to freelance. However, if you want to have your own business, and I really love this definition of business that's actually from the former CEO of IBM. Um, it's basically that a business is something that happens whether you're there or not. So freelancing is service-based. So you have to be, forget about just doing the pitching, you have to be writing those pieces. But a business is something where you have created something of value and that will give you money even if you're traveling, which for a lot of people who just want to be nomadic is a great goal, right? Because then you don't have to be online all the time. So if that is what you want, then building a business is a good way to go about it. And that today is so much easier, but you have to have something that you're selling and know roughly what that's going to be from the beginning. So I see a lot of people who start blogs in the travel space that are just giving either free information or a repository for your own observations or trip reports. And those blogs are very difficult to turn into a business down the line. And so I, for several years as a freelance blogger, wrote for a blog that was about the same kind of stuff that, that Travis also started out talking about in the beginning, which is travel hacking. And so we talked a lot about, you know, how to maximize your flights and how to maximize your credit cards and all of these different things. But I was paid to do it because I was doing it somewhere else. But this got me into the world of all of the people who run their own blog businesses around that. And they were killing it. They were running conferences for consumers who wanted to come learn about it. They had services for, like I said before, they showed that it was really difficult. And people said, well, I want this, but I don't want to do it. So they're like, great, just pay me $150 a ticket and I'll get your tickets for you. So they had it going on. But the rest of the travel bloggers didn't. And the interesting corollary of that was that they separated. Like they they weren't in the mainstream travel blogging community because a lot of travel bloggers just weren't monetizing. And so I've seen some interesting things, whether it's a lipstick that comes that's a perfume in a lipstick container so that you can take it on your flights and it's not technically liquid or, you know, people who are making different bags or there's Jody at Legal Nomads that started making these papers that said everything you would ever need to say about allergies and gluten-free in every different language. There's all of these different products that have come up, but people tend to do it through a second blog because they realize that their first blog is just not going to cut it. I think that is 
inherently the biggest mistake people make when they start blogs, if they want to do it to, to make money, is that they think that the blog itself will make them money. Like the, the physical writing of a post will make them money because they'll get all this traffic and they'll make money off of traffic. But it's... And, it, and yeah, it's what I thought when I started too. And I get why people think that. You just assume you're going to write like that's and your blog's going to make money. And we always say like the blog should be the marketing tool that makes money yep. for other that that leads to the thing that makes you money, whether it be a course, a product. Yeah, like you said, physical products. Maybe you, uh, you have a backpack and you're writing about the best ways to pack. And so you have a blog around that that's leading people to read about that and realize why your backpack's the best, whatever. Um, yeah, so many people I think have that misconception that the actual writing of a blog is going to make them money when in reality that's very very hard to do and and when I one of the reasons I was so skeptical before this workshop and you're like oh six figure travel writer I'm like how is that like the amount of traffic you would have to have to make money just off random ads and little affiliate stuff to make six figures would be astronomical like so that's one of the things I like about you what you talk about is the fact that there's this whole other side of freelance writing that has nothing to do with you actually having your own blog, but has to do with you writing for other places. And you started to mention that some of the random places that, that you would never know would, would pay writers. What are some of those, like to give people an idea, because I think most people think, oh, I want to be a travel writer. I'm going to write for National Geographic or Condé Nast or whatever, just these huge magazines or New York Times travel section. What are like some examples of places that you found like decent paying gigs as a freelance travel writer that people would never even think to look or, or know about? So these days, like I said, there there's quite a palpable split between the online versus the print markets, but not just in the way where you would think obviously like the pay, which is definitely different. And one of the things is that online markets are a quicker, faster route to having recurring work. So something that I talk a lot about in I do a free webinar every week that's around the business of travel writing and also this kind of content marketing things that we're talking about and the magazine landscape. But something I talk a lot about is that your hourly rate is the only thing that matters. If you are a freelancer who works in a service sort of setting and you are charging on fixed price, the only way for you to, especially when you're new and you can't, com you can't just command a higher rate based on experience to earn more is to do what you're already doing faster. And so when you're writing for the same client over and over again, it saves you so much time, not just because you don't have to go out and be pitching new people, but also because you already know the style, you have a relationship and a shorthand with the editor. And so one of the nice things about writing online about travel is that it's much easier to get that sort of recurring thing because they're publishing so frequently. So there's instance, just so much more content with, with yes. online stuff than there is print, obviously. Yeah, that's needed. And so it pays a little less. And so sometimes people are like, well, I would rather do print because it pays more. But actually, in the long run, you would be better off for your own needs, whether it's income or stability or whatever, just writing for a couple online outlets regularly. But in those cases, like I said, you can write for only websites or you can write for even the websites of magazines. So for instance, being a woman, I never picked up Men's Journal on the newsstand and I didn't realize that Men's Journal is actually kind of like an adventure travel magazine. And then I was at a conference where there was a woman who said that most of her work is writing for Men's Journal's website. And I was like, how does that yeah, work? Interesting. Yeah. And they publish, 
I'm forgetting if it's a week or a day, but they publish 10 to 12 articles, either a week or a day on their website. And that's not uncommon. And so even if you want to have be associated with one of those big outlets, doing it for their website can be both easier and more efficacious in terms of getting more assignments. And a lot of places, for instance, Afar, which is a newer magazine, but has jumped onto that list of, oh my God, I want to write for this magazine. Um, They similarly take a lot more stuff for their website than they do for print, obviously, because they're just publishing more. And Sever, which is a food magazine, but it's about the culture really around the world and food cultures. That's another one where they take a lot more stuff on their website and they do have a very robust website. So even just starting with magazines that you might read already or that you know and looking at what they have for the web outlets is a good place to start. But then also when I was looking up these websites that surprisingly take travel. I even found clothing stores that do city guides of different places. I mean, we all, or perhaps most of us are familiar with Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop, right? They even do city guides. But you'd be shocked at how many people do different types of travel. I was on, I found by accident a website, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name, but it w- it's actually run by time, so it pays pretty well. But it's specifically about breakfast foods. Like, it's an entire food website that's just about breakfast foods, but like 40% of it is travel. 40% of it is like where to eat in this place or this really cool breakfast from, you know, Japan pan or something like that. So there's an amazing number of editorial only websites. And then there's the magazine connected editorial websites. But then in print right now, like I said, there's more opportunities because people aren't pitching print. But there's also more opportunities because there's simply a crap ton of new travel magazines coming out every year. And people don't believe me because they've heard the magazines are dead. But I run a database of travel magazines and I add a new one every single day. And so we have about 500 in there and I'm in no danger of running out whatsoever. So there are so many magazines out there that need writers because people aren't pitching them. And people say, oh, well, you know, but I want to write this first person storytelling story from my trip and I want to include my photos and I just don't know where to put it. So I'm just going to put it on my blog. And the answer is these independent travel magazines. They are publishing the same sort of first person story that you would put on your blog. That's just a profile of this amazing For instance, one that somebody had mentioned to me recently, it's a synagogue somewhere in Eastern Europe where all of the Jews were taken away. And this man who's Catholic that was friends with these Jewish boys as a kid then dedicated himself to keeping up the synagogue like throughout World War II and the Holocaust and everything in honor of his friends who have left. And now I believe it's a UNESCO site. And she went there and the guy showed her around and she had the amazing story of him and the place. Like that's the kind of thing that a magazine will certainly publish. But people just say, I don't know which one, like nobody takes that kind of stories. But these independent magazines, there's a lot of them, um, Sidetracked, Travel Almanac, Another Escape, Collective Quarterly, Kinfolk, like we've got about 60 or 80 of them in the database, but they're all features. They're all first person or third person stories of just the same type of thing that you might put on your blog, but you can both get paid and get a really beautiful magazine clip out of it instead. So where should people look for those gigs? So you mentioned, uh, like, I want to hit on this for sure, because you have your um, you have your database, which means you've essentially done a, a lot of hard work uh, putting that together. People should go to that database. Where else should they look for gigs? Or is it like, is there certain places that you start people at if they're like, ah, uh, yeah, I want to do this, but I really, I have no idea where to go other than the Condé Nast slash, you know, big name places? Yeah. So like I said earlier, the the magazines that you already read, but the thing is like people are like, well, I don't really read magazines. So if you 
haven't already, just looking in your area, there's a lot of free weeklies or edible magazines are free in the stores and advertise in the edible magazines. And I think there's about, there's like 60 or 80 edible magazines now. And then there's also AAA magazines that maybe like you or your parents get automatically and you don't even realize the AAA magazines pay a dollar a word for their stories or more than a dollar a word. AARP actually pays $2 a word. Um, There's a lot of magazines that you might just walk by and never even pick up that are already kind of in your orbit in terms of their, your geographic area. Like there's a timeout magazine in every city. So there's a lot that you can just pick up. Um, Like Travis mentioned though, in terms of doing the work for you, one of the things that we do in the travel magazine database, which is very easily travelmagazinedatabase.com is that we actually have our writers analyze the magazine to see which sections are open to freelancers as opposed to that are written by staff people. And then we write down, it's this many words, it's first or third person. They typically have a sidebar that says eat, stay, go. And we tell you everything you would need to pitch those sections that are open to freelancers. But if you're just finding them on your own, it's really important that anything that you're looking at pitching, just make sure, just check against the masthead, which is that part in the front of the magazine that lists all the editors. Make sure that you aren't pitching something that's written always by an editor, because that'll be an automatic no. Because if they write that section on their own, then... If you pitch them, you're just going to get a no, and then you're going to be deflated about it. So your best chance for when you first start pitching is to pitch something that is open for freelancers. If you have a story that you do want to pitch, is it does it make sense to pitch to 5 or 10 or 15 all at once and see who gets back to you? Is that like a no-no where you like pitch to one and then wait to get an answer? How does that work? Thank you for asking that. That's like one of these big myths that I like to punch in the face a lot these days. Good, good. So someone just asked me this over the weekend, and here's the reality of the matter these days, is that any editor that doesn't understand that you need to make a living and need to be pitching as briskly in as many places as possible is probably a bit of a pain in the butt, and you don't want to work with them. So most editors will be totally fine with if you pitch it a bunch of places, and then they say, hey, we're interested in this, and you say, oh, so-and-so already bought it. Literally from an editor's mouth, somebody recently heard, oh, great. Well, I'll be faster next time. Like that positions (laughs) you as an in-demand writer, right? Like saying like, oh, sorry, someone else already bought that is something that automatically makes you look more professional to them. You know, it's the scarcity mindset that everybody wants what only a few people can have. So pitching a lot of places is both better for you because it immunizes you a little bit about getting too upset when you get one no because you have a better chance of getting more of those emails to turn into yeses just because it's a numbers game. And that's great to know because, I, yeah, pitch often, pitch to a lot, and yeah, don't... And don't get hurt about it. Don't get hurt, yeah. How often are you pitching stories versus having, I guess, accepting jobs or having recurring jobs? Is that... And, and with the recurring ones, is that you... Uh, this is kind of a two-part question. Let's start with the first one. How often are you pitching like stories to different magazines of it with an idea versus, hey, I've got this recurring job that I know I'm writing a monthly segment for this online magazine or something like that? So this is actually a cool question because this is one of those things that can go wrong for people in the first few years or even sometimes few decades of what they're doing. And then I get them coming to me later and then we revamp how they how they approach their freelancing. So I have a worksheet that we use when we do these master classes, which are really about business planning for freelance writers. And in the worksheet, the way that we organize it is that we basically have 10 rows and each row is 10% of your income. And then like when you're applying, for instance, to colleges, you want to have some reach 
some match and some safety. And so then the threshold of what should be recurring versus what you should be pitching every time, it depends a little bit on your personal level of what you need. Obviously, if you have kids and you need to support your family, that's going to be different than somebody who's 25 and living in a very low income or sorry, low expense Southeast Asian country or something like that. So for I recommend having at least a minimum absolute minimum of 30% of your stuff of your income needs being met with absolutely recurring it is on contract and you get that money coming in every month and you know for purely psychological purposes so that you don't ever have to freak out that you need to be hustling to be getting that money coming in because that's going to take away from the energy and the idea generation part of writing which is important so you don't want to feel like that money need is cutting into your writing time. And so what I typically say is then another 40% of that pie should be matched. So these might be people who you are writing for on the regular, but not on a contract. So these might be those websites that you write for a couple posts every week, but it's not necessarily set in stone that you're always writing for them. But I, the thing that happens to people especially if you've been doing it for a couple of years, is that when you first start freelancing, you're not sure if you're going to get any clients. And so you want everything to be recurring and you really hold very tightly to everything that comes your way. And then you end up with your pie being full of those recurring people. And then you're never reaching, you're never changing, you're never introducing new things. And that gets really dangerous, not just because you can get a little bit annoyed about doing the same thing all the time and sort of bored of it. But also because if you lose somebody, if somebody drops off, you know, either the website shuts down or they just don't need as much or whatever that case is, you've forgotten how to pitch. You've, you've stopped exercising that pitching muscle and it's atrophied. And now you're scared of pitching again. And then it's this big ramp up period for you to start building in new things. So I recommend that people always be pitching, but not, you, you don't want to be pitching for your whole income every month. And this is one of the reasons why I was saying like those editorial websites are really great because even if you do want to write for magazines, it's really stressful to have a bunch of new magazines every month be your whole income because it's a lot of learning the styles of different people and places. And that's brain draining, right? Like that takes a lot of different energy uh, away from not even just other parts of your work, but other parts of your life. And especially yeah. if you're traveling. Yeah. And I think people can relate that to travel, right? Sometimes it's nice to go back to a place you've been before it, it, in that same way, right? It's, it's great to go and see new places and run around and, and go to new countries. But there are times where I sit back and I'm like, all I want to do is go to Chiang Mai because I know exactly the guy I'm going to get my motorbike from. I know where I'm going to go eat this meal. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's nice to have that familiarity and not have to constantly be on and like, go, go, go. Like you can shut it off a little bit and just know that you're in a flow and, and go with that. Give us an example of something that, that you've done or that you've had um, students do that is like recurring is, you know, what is an example of something that's, that would be something that maybe someone starting out could possibly find? Totally. So there's, like I said, it depends on what segment you're looking at. If you're looking at the straight magazines or if you're looking at the websites. So with websites, there's one version for the content marketing websites, like for company websites, and one version for the editorial websites. So for editorial websites, it is 
pretty hard to get into the situation where you're actually on contract to write a certain number of posts every month. But what you can do is you can get into a groove with an editor where you just send them 10 or 15 ideas at a time and they just say this, 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 and this. And then you know going forward for the next month or two that those are the articles that you're writing for that website. And it's great because then you don't have to be pitching all the time, but you can also plan your work ahead. And you can do like a little bit of work on that article now versus every week you have a brand new post that you have to do that you have to come up with and you have to do it in just a week. So that's how you would do it for like an editorial website. The way that you would do it for content marketing clients is that you would, for instance, like I was talking about tour companies. So you would pitch this tour company to do your blog and then went to do their blog rather. And then when you set up the contract, you set it up that there is a minimum 30 day like turn off clause so that if either party wants to leave the agreement, there's notice. And that helps you for a buffer if you need to replace them down the line, either through their alter your own, that you have that time to replace that recurring income. But in the contract, you say, and every month I get paid on the first, the full amount, or it's split between the first and the 15th. And the reason that I like to do that with blogging contracts is that people who commission blogs, especially who aren't editors themselves, forget that even besides writing the actual blog post, there's all this work that you've done before that started in terms of fixing the editorial calendar, you know, researching what that thing is going to be. And so the reason, for instance, that I always explain to clients that I need to get paid on the first is that, well, if you're receiving a blog post on the first, I obviously already wrote that one before you've paid me. But I've also already done the planning and perhaps have already written a good chunk of these other posts. So it's actually a midpoint in my process where you're paying me. So that's that type of recurring. But then for magazines, there's also a type of recurring work that you can do. So on the one hand is very similar to the editorial websites that I was talking about, where you're just kind of not on contract, but you're pitching them ideas and you get them to assign you a bunch at once. But there's also this thing called being a contributing editor. And like this masthead I was talking about before, where you'll see the names of all the people, you'll often see contributing editors listed on that masthead, but they're actually freelancers. But there's they're freelancers who are on contract for that magazine to write either a piece or two every issue or to write a certain number of words every year or a certain number of pieces every year. So that's a way where you can even be on contract to do recurring work for a proper print magazine. So what does a typical, I know this is going to be very hard, all right, saying the word typical, but a typical week or month look Don't say like, for me. I wasn't going to say for you. I was going to okay, say good. because I know you do a lot of other stuff now yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about like having a business that's built around freelance writing. You know, you you obviously do some freelance writing, but you also now teach people how to do it. But what does a typical week or month look like for, uh, again, a re- typical regular, I hate to use these words, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for, for someone, one of your students who is a freelance writer, they're making good money. This is their job. This is what they've been doing. Like, how does something like that look for someone from the outside looking at their life? Totally. So I'll use an example, actually, of somebody who contract writes for us, because I know that she's pretty, she's been doing this for a while. And she's pretty far along in terms of having her work for the month met it out. So she's a good example. So she does a lot of the entries for our database every month. So she knows that every week she needs to give me a certain number of those. Then she also has copywriting. So she'll write 
not exactly a blog post, but the web copy for travel-related companies. Um, and then she'll do some editorial pieces here or there. So what'll happen is that her she'll know what her editorial deadlines are for magazine or website pieces for that month. So those will go on her calendar. And either, you know, she'll start working on them as soon as she gets them and start working on them means that she needs to set up phone interviews with the people she's going to interview for the piece or she's starting to do her web research. So she has that there so that when she's like, hey, I know what the structure of this piece is going to be. Like I have a brilliant idea to start it and then I'm just going to sit down and work on it. She's got that done because really those editorial kind of magazine deadlines become the linchpins in your calendar. And then around that, she says, okay, for Gabby, I know that I need like two hours to do each of these things and I need to have the physical physical magazine in front of me. So those need to be done on days when I'm at home. And so then she in her calendar will put, okay, this is due on Thursday. So like this Friday and Monday, I'm going to write all those posts. Then those next two days, I'm going to work on copywriting stuff. I can do that anytime. So if a new editorial opportunity comes in, I'll do that. And then she basically says, okay, you know, today I have a networking event that I want to go to in downtown London. So I'm going to work at home from, you know, like, 10 to 2 on these things with the magazines and then I'm going to go into the city and do copywriting because I can do it offline. So that's kind of the normal both like day and month setup. And that's why having the recurring things versus not makes your life so much more livable. Yeah, because like you said, you put those big stakes in the ground or those big linchpins of, all right, these are the things that are very, very time sensitive. Here are the things that I can pop in and do for an hour or two because they're not as in depth, I don't have to get in the writing flow, you know, all that kind of stuff. But doing the research in advance is also a big thing because that way, whenever you finally feel that like, okay, I get it, you can sit down and write that thing rather than saying, okay, I have a deadline. I need to write this right now. Let me be clever. Mm. Like that's really draining. <laughs> yeah. Trying to be clever usually yeah. leads to being very unclever or not clever. Or spending 10 times as long. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's very, that's very, very true. So kind of the last question before we transition here, because this has always been uh, top of my mind is when I first started writing, right, as a travel blogger, like, like you said, it was a funny term. It was still funny in 2012, but I was writing on the travel hacking side. So you mentioned this, I kind of didn't say I was a travel blogger because I wasn't really like, there was, you know, there was that, that break a little bit. But in my mind, at least through the lens that I saw it, almost all travel bloggers at that point, their whole goal was to go on sponsored trips. Like that was the thing. Oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to write these articles for this tourism board or this travel company, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to go on these sponsored trips. And to me, I always looked at it as, well, what are you building? Like, you know, I, I want to build a business so that I can make money. And then if someone really wants me to go on a sponsored trip, I'll consider it. But at that point, it at least it seemed to me as someone new starting out that everyone was chasing sponsored trips and that that wasn't building anything substantial. That was just going from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And I thought like, you're going to like, you're going to burn out. How could someone keep doing this? It's a lot of travel. It's a lot of work and you're not really making money. You're just... Yep you know, you're, you're just on that hamster wheel over and over, even if it is a fun hamster wheel for a while. So I never decided to do any sponsor trips or anything like that. Is that something that has changed? Like, where do you fall on that, on that spectrum of, Hey, should I go after sponsored trips and should I accept them? And if I do, what should I be getting paid for? You know, there's a lot of questions that come around that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we actually have done past webinars, quite a few of them on sponsorship, because this is something that people, like you said, that's like the holy grail when you first out. 
get start out next to getting an assignment, it's getting a sponsor trip. And sometimes that's even more important. But as you mentioned, it really is a bit of a hamster wheel. And that's one of these like the dream nightmare dichotomy of things where sponsorships often usually are very bad. And you don't know that until you've gone on one. It's like flying first class that it just seems like this thing, like it just must be better. But unlike first class, it's not usually anywhere near as luxurious as you think it's going to be. And some of that comes down to the schedule. So the schedule on a sponsored trip is just bonkers. I've been on sponsored trips. We were actually seriously scheduled until two in the morning. And then at 8 a.m. we had to be checked out of our hotel room, already had breakfast and on the bus to leave again. And nobody, no organizer blinked an eye about this. Like it didn't come up that that would be wrong. Because what happens with sponsored trips is that there's so many stakeholders involved that you have asked to, you know, sponsor a lunch or sponsor a hotel stay or whatever. And the person who's organizing that trip needs to make sure that as many of them are happy as possible. And sometimes they haven't said yes until the end. And so you as the writer often don't even get that itinerary until you show up because it's so in flux until that last moment. And I have been on trips where we were literally, literally every 15 minutes, we were scheduled to be somewhere different, which doesn't even make sense from a driving time standpoint. But they put that on there. And then of course, what happens is this is where the bad experience bit comes in, is that as you are out there on the ground, you are having to keep pushing things off or be rude to the person who's telling you their story because you need to go somewhere else or not get to ask the questions you want to ask because you know you need to leave or the person who's trying to get a good photo, you know, is making everybody else pissed off because they're always lagging behind. And so I'm on the side where you're much better off traveling by yourself. And that by yourself can also be with a partner. It can be another writer, but in terms of organizing it on your own. And so when bloggers are trying to get sponsored trips, often bloggers are trying to get sponsored things just for themselves rather than to get on a group trip. People do go on group trips, but the higher, like the bloggers who've been around longer are trying to get things that are just for them. And part of that is because they work when they're traveling. And so they do need time in their schedule to be more flexible around that. But also it's because they know that being on a group trip is kind of horrible and they're unlikely to really get what they need. And so like Travis said, it's not a good time input for what you're getting out of it for your own business. So I actually don't do too much sponsored stuff at all. Like sometimes I do because when you work in travel, the conferences that you go to often have trips attached to the conference. So you only pay a hundred bucks or whatever it is to go to the event, but then you can go on multiple day trips and even overnight trips for free as part of that conference, just by being an attendee, like you might not even have to apply. And so I actually kind of conversely go on those, not just to get ideas, but to hang out with people (laughs) to like get to know better the people who are at the conference. But I think Sponsor travel is one of those really stark things that you want to be a travel writer and then you do it and you're like, this is absolutely not as cool as I thought it was going to be. Right. And <laughs> that's why this whole thing of influencers has become a lot more prevalent, I think, because getting your Instagram profile to a certain level and then going on a trip, it's a very clear deliverable that you need to get out of it. You just need to get a handful of photos and you don't need to be getting all of that information from the tour guide or it's not as huge of an issue to you if this thing in the afternoon drops off, which is what you really wanted to write about. And also the payment mechanism for Instagram influencers is so much simpler than bloggers. So like when Travis was saying getting the six figures as a blogger, like how does that even happen through ads? and this like how does that come together um with instagram it's very 
codified. And I've asked vloggers in different countries, or rather Instagram bloggers, who don't work only in English. And it seems to be quite standard worldwide, where a very common mechanism is that if you are on a trip in Barbados through the Barbados Tourism Board, as an Instagram influencer, you are being paid $100 per 10,000 followers per photo you take. So if you have 80,000 Instagram followers, and you're on contract to be on that trip and take three to four photos a day, you're getting paid $800 a photo, and you get paid for three photos a day, you're getting $2,400 a day that you are there in Barbados to hang out in Barbados. And the only work you have to do is take those three photos. So that is kind of the dream right now. But, you know, to go back to this kind of travel hacking way of writing where the end path for making money is clear, if you're going to be an Instagram influencer, you need to concentrate just on building your Instagram numbers and that's it. The engagement doesn't even matter quite as much. So that's a very clear path, but a lot of people ignore it because they want to have a blog and their Instagram is secondary. But if you want to make a make money and serious money just through that travel and experiencing and being paid by the tourism board method, being an Instagram influencer today is the way to do it. Looks like we have another podcast we have to do now, <laughs> right? I mean, but I, I, I am with you. I So long story short with sponsored trips, right? Just be very careful of the ones you're going on and you know, be cognizant of what you're expected to do, what the schedule's like, who's going on it, what they expect, you know, what time you're going to have to yourself, all that stuff. But um, do it once. Just do it once to get it out of your system. Yeah, yeah. Do it once, and then and then be and then hopefully pick ones that that fit really well. And I've done one, and it was last minute, and it fit perfect for me, and and it was an awesome experience. So I actually haven't had the bad experience. I've just heard so many other people have the bad experience that I thought I think I lucked out in in just falling into one that I I thought would be perfect, and it really really was. Um, and was this when you were further along? With your numbers? Yeah, this would have been uh, maybe last. Was it last year? I was probably mm-hmm. I had probably been blogging for about three, three to four years, somewhere like yeah. that. Um, when you're like I was mentioning, when there's these two folks, Deb and Dave, who blog together, and their blog is Planet D, and they do a lot of trips, but they're like constantly traveling, but they always work on the road, and they have a lot of regular clients, and they know what their work is, and they can do it while they're there. But for instance, they always get trips that are good because when you're a bigger blogger, they tend to take your needs into account also when planning the schedule. Yeah, they were one of the very first people to come on the podcast. Oh. I don't remember what how long ago it was, but I mean, it was a long time ago. I don't remember. You've done what so many episodes. Yeah, I mean, so we're at like t- mid two nineties. So yeah, they were probably about two hundred and fifty back there somewhere. Uh, but great, great people um, at the Planet D. I want to transition really quickly before we let you go and ask you about the retreat center and the cat skills because that's something. I mean, I guess I was going to say totally different than travel writing, but it's not because you're using it as a haven for teaching and stuff like that. How did something like that come about where you said, all right, I'm I'm freelance travel writer, I'm traveling, I'm doing all this. Hey, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to open up something that is, you know, location dependent, at least at least for this part of it. Um, and what does it look like? Like, what do you guys do there? I'm just interested in the whole thing of having this retreat center in the Catskills. Well, you're in Philadelphia, so you should just come. All right. Um, well, I, all right. How far? Two and a half hours to get in my car now. After the baby. That's after right. The baby. That's right. <laughs> so... I, I, whenever people ask me this story, it's, it starts with, we accidentally bought a seven bedroom house. So the going from location independent to location dependent, we actually don't live there. And this is kind of a misconception that a lot of people who show up there 
get because it is a house, admittedly a very, very large house, but we live in New York City. We don't live, we don't stay at the house unless we're there for work. And so we also run a CSA, a farm share out of there. So we have a small farm that we do a CSA here in the city. So we will go up there. I'm building all the furniture. That's my hobby. Um, yeah, You're I'm throwing on more and more I, things, I right? Know, I know. It's almost done. Um, but so when you buy a seven-bedroom house, the furniture gets really expensive. No, so we are typically only up there when we're working. So what the house looks like is um, when you just roll up, it's in the mountains. It's quite up on this hill in this village. And it from the outside, it looks like a totally normal sort of suburban setting. And then you go inside. And like I said, there are seven bedrooms. We have a 1,200 square foot pub in the basement with a sauna. And then we have the, the backyard. We have a mini forest. The backyard is quite big and it's contiguous with some of the neighbors who have chickens. And we have the farm. So you really feel like you're in the country, but it's only an hour and a half from New York City. And you can even take a bus from Port Authority, which is the main bus station here in New York, out to the village and then either get picked up by us or just walk right up the hill. So I use it for myself for retreats. And it's kind of this chicken and egg thing where we started doing retreats because we bought the house. So I was originally, I wanted an actual tiny house, like on wheels, a tiny house. And we were looking for land, (laughs) put it on. And we couldn't get land where we could have a mobile home because the tiny house is on wheels. It's technically a mobile home. So then my husband said, well, let's just buy a house that we don't care about and just put it in the backyard and not tell anybody, like not, you know, follow the permit you're supposed to get. And so I said, great. And then as a lark, we saw this house listing and we were like, we just want our real estate agent to take us there just so we can gawk at this house. Um, And it actually cost a really similar amount to several of the other smaller places that we were looking at because it had been in the same family for a really long time. It had just been passed down and the original father who built it had died and they were trying to offload it more or less. So I being kind of a, a event person and community builder looked at it and I was like, so many people could use this house. Forget about me. Like so many people could use this house. Like we have to buy this house and turn it into something that people can use. So we've set it up so it's really equipped for writers. So we do a residency program where you can pay just 150 bucks and come for the week and just work from the house and concentrate on whatever it is you need to get done. Whether it's banging out a bunch of podcast episodes or writing a bunch of blog posts or if you have articles you need to write or you want to do a pitch blitz or you have a novel that you're working on or some other book or you want to do your MVP ebook for your blog just to get that done. So we have it set up so that you can just come for a week and do that. And everybody knows that everyone else is working on projects and that you need to be respectful and not just chat somebody up so that everybody can work in the main public rooms or if you want, you can work in your own room. So you can work, we have like a 40 foot long window that looks out into the back where there's deer and turkey and stuff and you can sit there and work with the beautiful nature behind you. So that whenever you get distracted, you can be like, relaxed instead of on Facebook. Um, and then you can work in the pub and or you can just take a chair and sit outside. So that's that's what the retreat house. That's what it is. Yeah, I I will. Epop listeners, I'll do a reconnaissance mission up there. I'll <laughs> take one for the team and check out this uh, seven bedroom. Whoops. We bought this instead of a tiny house uh, retreat center up there. And the cat goes, how long have you guys had it? And how often is it? Is it like usually full with all seven bedrooms taken up or is it seasonal? Do you only open up a few times? How does that work? Yeah. So because when we do the residencies, they go from Sunday to Saturday. And when we do events, they go from Friday to Sunday. There's a lot, there's not tons of weeks per se open where you could just go for the week because 
it's funny that you said whoops, because my husband is a mathematician and he actually runs a workshop called whoops, which means weekend of open problem solving at the retreat center. So they have whoops there as well. So there's a couple of different types of workshops that we do. So the weeks that are open for residency have to schedule wise balance out with that. So pretty much every, every weekend, either one of us has something or it's available for you to come and stay. So it's the idea is for, you know, like I said, for it to be a community resource and for somebody to always be able to be there, whether it's us or someone else. Awesome. So you guys have traveled quite a bit as well. And I want to just touch on this um, before, we, before we let you go. Some of your favorite places that you've been, because I know you originally were talking all about Italy and how much you loved Italy. And that was going to be like, it was like Italy focused and that's it. And then you realized, wait, I can basically get the same feeling all over the world. Maybe not as good pizza and stuff like that. But um, do you have a few favorites, a few countries or areas that you've been to that that really hold a special place in your heart? Yeah, for travel writers, it's kind of like wherever I was just last week, because your job is to find that unique, really amazing thing about each place. But I'd have to say it's kind of funny because I you mentioned Japan. I My mother used to go to Japan for work a lot and never take me. So I grew up knowing a lot about Japan, but not having gone there. And then I didn't go for a while because I didn't write about it. And now I've gone a couple times, once for myself for work and once for my husband. And there's just so much about Japanese culture, like the way that they do things so that you never need to feel uncomfortable or ask questions. Like you'll be in an elevator and there's a little triangle in the corner and it has an emergency kit. It can also be used as a bathroom if the elevator is stuck and it has like every single thing you could possibly need. Or in the rooms, they give you slippers, an outfit, like pajamas and a robe to take to the spa and a toothbrush and razors and like everything. So like there's just something about the type of hospitality in Japan that I, that I really, really love. And I went with um, another WDS or actually to this set of islands that are a 25 hour ferry ride from Tokyo and there's no airplanes to go there. The only way is on the ferry ride. And that was just a really cool place because it's Japan, but tropical and there aren't a lot of tourists. So you can be on this beach and have this ridiculous sunset and there's no one around, even in the summer, even in the high season. And those are called the Ogasawara Islands. So that's one of my favorite places. 25 hours by ferry. Wow. Yeah. There won't be many tourists who are willing to take a 25 hour ferry. completely full. Yeah, but just with Japanese with Japanese people. Yeah, with but Japanese the ferry people. itself is a fascinating experience as yeah. well. All right, another reconnaissance mission. I have two <laughs> cat skills and a twenty-five hour ferry ride from. Yeah, that from one Tokyo. might be a little harder. Yeah, that, I can't really pull that off this weekend. What about some places that you uh, that you've got on your hit list? There's places that you want to go. There's places that I've been that I really want to go back to, but I've been trying to kind of knock off the ones that. So that I don't have to keep saying, because it's embarrassing as a professional traveler, yeah, I've always wanted to go to blah, 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 and I've never been. Um, so actually, recently I was in Sardinia, which I wanted to go to for a long time because it's part of Italy, but it's very, very different. And there's a part called the Coast, Costa Esmeralda, so like the Emerald Coast, that I didn't get to go to because I was sick. But it's supposed to be essentially like those Southeast Asian, really like secluded in the islands of Thailand style beaches, but much, much closer. So that's that's definitely a bucket list thing for me. I was right there and I didn't go and I've always wanted to. So that's next. Awesome. Great. And you worked Italy right back into that too, right? Yeah, it's come, yeah, coming yeah. full circle. Yeah. Last question I have for you is, 
your biggest travel mishap? And I know usually when we ask this, it's not that you don't have one, it's that you might have many and uh, deciphering it down into one. Do you have one that comes to mind when, when we ask you what your biggest travel mishap is? Yeah. So it's funny because when he, when Travis told me about this question before the call, I was like, Oh my God, I must have so many. I, there's none of them even stand out. But now I'm kind of like, well, what does mishap mean? Does that mean it's my fault or does that mean it was just horrible? Open to interpretation, so, right? That's why it's I fun. The crup, like the crummiest thing that ever happened to me traveling was my husband's Indian. So we had a wedding here, but we also had a wedding in India. And as you may have heard, Indian weddings have a lot of different things that span over different days. So there's this one part that I actually didn't know about until I started being involved in more Indian weddings myself called the Sangeet. And Sangeet means music in Hindi. And it's kind of a variety show where older relatives will sing classical songs, like all the young kids will get together and do these crazy dances to Bollywood songs, people will read poems, or they'll do improvised scenes, like there's just all sorts of stuff going on. And during my wedding, my sister-in-law, who is a professional dancer, and I did a little swing dance. And at some point, I was lifting her, and I threw my back out for the first time in my life. And so then I had to be at my Indian wedding in this massive sari with my back out. And I could barely get up and down. But the really mishap part of that is trying to go to the bathroom in a sari in the first place is like a little impossible if you're not used to it. But doing that with your back out is just like you need like six helpers and you feel like a, like a princess holding up the train or something like that. But to make matters worse... Because it was my wedding and I wasn't looking really closely, somebody served me some food that had some vegetables on it. So in India, especially, you shouldn't have tomato, which is on everything, with the skin on that hasn't been cooked, or cilantro, which they put on everything. And so I got sick. And I didn't know for a few more days because I was taking a malaria medication that can make you sick to your stomach. So I just thought it was my malaria medication. And so then I went on my honeymoon and I was sick my entire honeymoon. That's my biggest mishap. Yeah, that's pretty big. I mean, it kept going. It was like, oh, I threw my back out. Plus, then I got food poisoning. Plus, yeah, I've been to one Indian wedding in my life, and I I got food poisoning from the... I don't know which day it was. It was like two days before the wedding, when it was just the bride's family, you know, when they do separate parties. Anyway, um, yeah, I... uh, it's pretty, pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. Last question for you. What do you have coming up in the pipeline, Gabby, that people need to know about? Yeah, so I, I do so many things, as I'm sure you do as well. So the in terms of things to know about, I guess it is that we kind of just officially opened up applications for this residency program at the retreat house that I mentioned for you. So we had kind of been betaing it as all entrepreneurs do. We kind of beta these things. So now it's officially open. So if you are interested in checking out the house either to do an individual residency, which is that $150 for the week and do whatever you want. Or if you are also a small business owner and you are looking at getting into doing retreats, you can find the house information at rosewoodwritingretreats.com. And that's got pictures and also the story of how we bought the house and all that. Awesome. Gabby, thank you so much for joining me today and for opening people's eyes to all the possibilities out there in travel writing, not just what we kind of think when we start out, right? Yeah, and, uh, totally. and showing us that you can actually make some very, very good money doing it and have a, have a great lifestyle. Remind people one more time how they can get a hold of you or find you. Like, What's the best place for them to go to see all this stuff that you're doing? 
Yeah. So the the company Dream of Travel Writing, just dreamoftravelwriting.com. That's where we've got our webinars. And from there, you can link into the Travel Magazine database and the coaching that I do and other workshops around the world or the weekend workshops up at the retreat center. So just www.dreamoftravelwriting.com. Thank you, Gabby. And guys, we will link up everything that Gabby talked about today in the show notes so you can get that extra pack of peanuts.com slash shows. We'll link up everything she's doing and everything we discussed here right in there. Don't forget, if you are traveling around the world, you need a good travel backpack, check out tortugabackpacks.com. Use the promo code EPOP to get 10% off anything you order there. Thanks again, Gabby. I really appreciate it. It was absolutely awesome. And hopefully we get some more travel writers out there from this. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today for the continued support. As always, that makes us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris and all that.